Now, every president has had some experience as a parent. Of the 43 men who have served in the nation's highest office, 38 have fathered biological children and the other five adopted. Each president's parenting style reveals much about his beliefs as well as his psychological makeup. James Garfield, for example, enjoyed jumping on the bed with his kids. FDR's children, on the other hand, had to make appointments to talk with their father. Today's speaker will both describe the parenting practices of America's presidents and discuss how their experiences as fathers forever changed the course of American history. Joshua Kendall is an award-winning journalist with work in the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, USA Today, Psychology Today, and the Boston Globe, among other publications. He's an associate fellow of Yale University's Trumbull College. Josh is the author of several books, including The Man Who Made Lists, about the creation of Roger's Thesaurus, The Forgotten Founding Father, a biography of Noah Webster, the lexicographer responsible for Webster's Dictionary, America's Obsessives, the compulsive energy that built a nation, which features biological profiles of seven American icons, including Thomas Jefferson and Charles Lindbergh, and his latest book, copies of which Josh will be happy to sign for you after the lecture, First Dads, Parenting and Politics from George Washington to Barack Obama. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome to Josh Kendall. Uh, thank you, Paul. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, we all learn about the presidents when we're children, and the, we tend to think of them as, as st st statues on, on, on Rushmore. And then later in life, uh, maybe in college or, or uh, as adults when we start reading biographies, we, we tend to see that the idealization doesn't quite work, and we, we maybe become a little bit more critical. And I, I'm trying to use fathering as a way in to capture presidents as complicated human beings, to give the reader a feel for what it was like to have dinner with them or spend a weekend with them. And we also tend to think of presidents as lists of policies. And I really want to emphasize their humanity and, and all the different sides of presidents. And my, my focus through fathering is on presidential character. James David Barber, a leading political scientist in the 1970s, once wrote in his book on presidential character, the issues will change, but the character of the president will last. Now, information about the children of presidents, uh, there, there really hasn't been much written. Uh, the families often don't want historians to pry around. For instance, in the John Adams papers at the Massachusetts Historical Societies, uh, some of the letters involving uh, one of the sons, Charles Adams, who died of 30, they're, they're missing. And the families tend not to, to be, not to be that cooperative. And another reason is that historians tend to ignore it. They feel like, what does family life really have to do with the Civil War or with the Great Depression or these monumental events in American history? And historians often think of, of family relationships as what I call squishy stuff. But my point is that it's not squishy. And let me just give you uh, one example for now. I, I divide the presidents into six categories. And one category is the grief-stricken presidents, 
presidents who lose a child. I wrote a piece for the New York Times in October because the presidential contest of 2016 has been affected already by the loss of a child. Joe Biden would probably be running at this minute if he hadn't lost a, a, a child when in the 1970s and also a child recently. But historically, in 1853, Franklin Pierce uh, was about to take office two months before he was about to take office. He's on the train going from Andover back to New Hampshire. He's with his third wife and third survive, and third child. He lost two other children. They're taking a train from Andover to New Hampshire. The train crashes. Uh, a piece of wood uh, crushes the boy. Pierce has to pick up the boy with a hole in his head. A week later, he writes to Jefferson Davis, someone uh, well-known here in the South. Jefferson Davis was his, going to be his Secretary of War. And Pierce writes to Davis, I don't know how I can go on. I don't know how I can take this office. And his presidency is considered among the worst in American history. And as I argue, I, I believe he had post-traumatic stress disorder. His wife literally goes psychotic. She starts writing letters to the dead children and Pierce's presidency is a disaster, but I, I argue that we need to see the humanity of the person. And if this accident had not happened, uh, the course of history may well have changed because during his administration, we go deeper and deeper into uh, the sectional conflict and he does nothing to prevent it. Another uh, moving example is Calvin Coolidge. In 1924, uh, Calvin Coolidge is about to run for a term of his own his son is playing tennis, Cal Jr., a 16-year-old son. He's playing tennis. He cuts his toe. A week later, he drops dead. Remember, when Calvin Coolidge dies in 1933, Dorothy Parker of The New Yorker says, how could they tell? Because Calvin Coolidge is sleeping 11 hours a day. And I argue that he became chronically depressed. In 1923, he was on the top of his game, his first year in office. There's an earthquake in Japan. He's one of the first world leaders to respond. He's got a whole list of initiatives. He wants to reduce taxes. He's very energetic. After the death of his son, and that chapter is called, I Always See the Boy Playing Tennis on the Court Out There. And I argue that his, great, his depression may well have caused the Great Depression, that he's kind of asleep at the switch when the economy comes tumbling down uh, because of the loss of his son. So as I wrote in this New York Times article, this is not squishy stuff. This is part of the fabric of American history, uh, these, these parents and their relationships to their children. So to get you in the spirit of things, I just want to show a few photos. OK, here's FDR and his eldest son, James. FDR literally leaned on his son to become president. In 1924, he has a comeback. Remember, he gets polio in 21. In 24, he goes to Madison Square Garden uh, he, to, to deliver a speech for Al Smith. And he's leaning on his son and for the rest of his life. And to America, he's a great father. To the millions of Americans, he's an inspiring leader. But to his own children, to his own children he's like a child. And they're propping him up. And his sons play a huge role in his rise uh, to success. Uh, here's his daughter, Anna. She also is a pivotal figure in Yalta. She may well have kept FDR alive 
for an extra year or two. She's the one who makes sure that his, he goes to the doctor for his heart problems. Uh, and she's a kind of micromanager uh, in Yalta. Here's Jimmy Carter. And he had, uh, this is Chip Carter and Karen, uh, Karen his wife, and, and Jimmy Carter's mother. This is at the convention in 1976. Jimmy Carter uh, had three adult sons. Everyone remembers Amy from the 1970s. He had three adult sons who were all married. Uh, had, you know, so the, the, there were three young couples. And this was his staff of six that propelled him to the presidency. Jimmy Carter was on What's My Line in 1974, and he stumped the panel. No one knew who he was. <laughs> and these six family members were responsible for getting him into the White House. So here, here they are today. That's Amy, uh, Chip, Jack, and Jeff. Uh, Franklin Pierce, Harry Truman called him the most handsome president. And he was a dashing figure, a great speaker, and there was so much hope for his administration. And the, the boy died, and uh, it was all downhill from there. Uh, this is Calvin Coolidge's son, Cal Jr., who dies in, in 1924. Uh, John Quincy Adams, uh, I call him a tiger dad, and I'll say more about that. He was very tough with his children. He had, he had a couple of children who were uh, at Harvard, and one of them was 30th in his class. And John Quincy Adams said, uh, don't come home for Christmas. Uh, he was 30th out of 75th. Don't come home for Christmas. Uh, you've got to uh, study in Cambridge. Uh, and I, I don't want to see you. I'll feel nothing but shame until you improve your standing. Uh, this is a son of John Quincy Adams, George Washington Adams, who commits suicide. Uh, George Washington, a tiger dad can either make or break his children and this child, uh, and I'll say a little bit more about him, George Washington, his first son. Uh, this, is John, this is John Eisenhower, Ike's son. Uh, I have a, a section on Ike that begins on June 6, 1944, which of course is D-Day, but it's also the day that John graduates from West Point. And as soon as so I, I start with his graduation, and from West Point, John goes right to the front to meet with his father, and they spend a month together. Ike is a nervous wreck. He doesn't know how the war is going, but he's not, he's not so nervous that he can't be uh, a tiger dad, and he criticizes John for everything uh, during that month. His bridge game is no good. His uniform is too dusty, and Ike was a very tough. Uh, he used to yell a lot when he was in the White House, and then he would tell his staff, well, uh, my mother taught me how to control my temper. And then as soon as he left the room, they would say, and she didn't do a very good job. <laughs> uh, Theodore Roosevelt, this is a letter to his daughter, Alice. Uh, I'll, uh, Alice, uh, I argue in the book that Alice helps him win the Nobel Prize. He, uh, in 1905, he wins the Nobel Peace Prize, and he sends Alice to Asia on a goodwill tour, and that's very helpful uh, for his political objective. So again, these relationships are really critical to the fabric of American history. Uh, Grover Cleveland, who, like Tyler, as you'll hear about, marries a much uh, younger woman. And here's John Tyler uh, from here. And I've, I interviewed Harrison, his grandson, who showed me around Sherwood Forest. And here is one of. Uh, one of 
an alleged slave child of John Tyler, and I'll be talking a little bit more about. Uh, I have a chapter in my book called Double Dealing Dads, Dads with Illegitimate Children, and it features a section on Tyler. And All right. So I hope that gets you in the spirit of the book. Not necessarily that photo, but the, all the photos. All right, a little bit about my method. My method is nonpartisan, and I'm taking the long view of history. And as Paul said, uh, every president has had experience as a father. And just to, again, to talk about how important fathering is, one of the reasons that George Washington was unanimously elected our first president is that he had no biological children. So in the 1780s, we had just fought a war to get the Brits out of our face. And the last thing we wanted to do was to have another monarch. So George Washington, he had some stepchildren, but had no biological children. So he was safe. He was not going to pass on the reins of power uh, to a family member. And he, he writes this uh, in an early draft of his first inaugural. All right, I divide the presidents into six buckets. Uh, and the first bucket is preoccupied. Like Franklin Roosevelt, as Paul said, he, the kids needed to make appointments to see him. One of the sons uh, is about to get married, makes an appointment, and FDR shoves a piece of paper in his face and says, I should like to have your opinion on it. The boy was crushed because FDR really didn't have time to talk to him. He goes to Eleanor and says, I'm never going to talk to him about anything serious again. Uh, so the, the, the most common category is preoccupied. These are parents who are very ambitious and driven. And not surprisingly, that's the largest category. How else do you get to the White House if you're not ambitious and driven? I mean, it's the most direct path to getting there. In the USA Today review of my book, they said, father knows best unless he happens to be president, because uh, the story isn't so good and preoccupied uh, is pretty standard. Jimmy Carter, uh, Jack, his eldest son, said, Dad was, was very driven. He was one track. And in the 1980s, Jack told his father after his presidency that he had ruined his life due, due to his harsh parenting. Uh, Jimmy Carter later made amends, and he was first horrified, but then spoke with Jack, and they, they worked, worked it out. So I, I left a book for Jimmy Carter when I was in Atlanta last week, and I said, to America's best post-president and best post-presidential dad, because I was very moved by the way he had taken his son seriously and tried to work on the relationship. I found that very moving. So first category is preoccupied. That's the largest. The second category is playful. For example, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, he, he would stop work at 3 o'clock and then go up to, to the attic and play tag uh, with his kids. Then the double-dealing dads, dads with illegitimate children. Uh, you know, a lot has been written about Jefferson, so I don't talk so much about Jefferson. In each chapter, I have three stars whom I profile in depth. So I, I did in-depth profiles about 20 presidents, and then I fold in some other presidents. In my double-dealing chapter, dad's chapter, I deal with Tyler. Grover Cleveland, if you remember the election of 1884, was about whether or not Grover Cleveland had an illegitimate child and Warren Harding, uh, president in 1920. And the last summer, DNA evidence came out confirming that he had fathered a child. He used to ha literally have sex in the coat closet of, of the White House. Uh, and a woman wrote a memoir in 1928 
uh, and, and no one believed her. And then in the 1960s, a Harding biographer stumbled on 200 love letters to another mistress, uh, which the Library of Congress released a couple of years ago, and then people started believing the first mistress, and then there was now DNA evidence. Uh, then other categories uh, are the tiger dads. I've spoken a little bit about them. So Eisenhower is one that I profile. Fifth category is the grief-stricken. I've spoken a little bit about that. And then the last category, there are some sweet dads, the nurturing dads. Harry Truman, uh, Margaret Truman described herself as a total daddy's girl. Bess Truman was a little bit traumatized and she was very nervous and hated the spotlight, and there was a family tragedy behind that. When she was 18 years old in Independence, Missouri, her father blew his brains out in the house. Truman was afraid to run in 1944, because then suicide was a huge shame. He was afraid to run because he thought that the news might come out and Margaret would be devastated. Anyhow, she was a very nervous mother, but Harry was terrific, and when Margaret wanted to become a singer, Bess said, come on, this is 1940s America. You've know, you got to get, get married here, none of this solo. And Harry said, she wants to become a warbler? Let's let her become a warbler. <laughs> and he was very, very supportive. Uh, and another, uh, and just to give you a sense, and some of the presidents fall into more than one category. For instance, George Herbert Walker Bush 41, uh, was a preoccupied dad. And these preoccupied dads love their kids, but they're just very, very busy and very ambitious. Uh, but he also suffered a major loss, grief-stricken. Remember, he had Robin Bush, who dies in about 1950, a daughter. And Larry Altman of the New York Times told me 50 years later, Bush could still not talk about that loss. And that, and that uh, grief actually uh, has a role in American history because it changes George W. Bush, his eldest son. That's when Barbara Bush, she's only in her late 20s, her hair turns white. She's, she's traumatized. And George Bush, the, her son, who's about seven, starts to become very playful. And he, his clownish side emerges. And he becomes a playful pal with his two daughters, Jenna and Barbara. So this is a sense of the continuity between a grief-stricken dad and a playful pal. So every chapter has three stars, and I try to, so I, I, I talk about three presidents, and then I fold in a few other presidents. For instance, uh, William Henry Harrison, in my chapter on double-dealing dads, William Henry Harrison may also have had slave children, and I just talk about what the allegations are. He may have had uh, four slave children, so I just have to say that in a couple of paragraphs although I'm, I'm focused mostly on uh, Tyler uh, and, and Cleveland. Uh, so the Tyler, and just, just the, the 1840 ticket was the most fertile in American history. <laughs> Harrison had 10 children with his, with his wife, may have had four uh, slave children. Tyler had eight children with his first wife, Letitia, who dies in 1842. Then he marries Julia Gardner, with whom he would later have seven children. But there are also some serious allegations that he had dozens of slave children, including the one I showed you. And I, I don't know. There hasn't been DNA evidence yet. I just talk about the allegations. 
which are kind of, you know, where do the Thomas Jefferson allegations were a generation ago? And I don't know the truth, but I just try to lay out the evidence and let the reader uh, decide. All right. So about 40% of the presidents were preoccupied. And in that chapter, I talk about my three stars are FDR, LBJ, and Carter. I spoke to Lucy Johnson, and LBJ used to say that he only thinks about politics 18 hours a day. Uh, and Lucy's sister, Linda, they wanted FaceTime with their father. So what Linda J Johnson starts doing as a teenager is reading the congressional record. This way, she figures she and her father will have something to talk about. He, he can't say, how are you? How was your day? That's much too relational for LBJ. But he can get right down to business. Uh, other preoccupied dads, Martin Van Buren, William Howard Taft, Nixon, Reagan. And I think the Clinton, both Bill and Hillary Clinton, uh, even though she would be a mom, she was still a preoccupied parent. Uh, and I also have done something on the Trump kids. I interviewed Eric Trump. And Trump would also be a, a preoccupied parent. Vanity Fair did a piece on the Trump kids. And they kind of took my line, which is that they seem kind of normal. And maybe uh, Trump basically was too preoccupied to deal with them when they were little. <laughs> that may be one reason why. Uh, but the Trump kids, like the Clintons and like Johnson, their relationship to their father, I'm thinking of the three eldest, is through work, right? They're all members of his Trump organization, just like Chelsea Clinton is a member, you know, works in the foundation uh, that preoccupied parents, or Jimmy Carter, his sons worked on the farm and then worked in politics. So they're sort of extensions. Remember FDR leaning on his son? These preoccupied parents kind of lean emotionally. on. So, so these relationships are kind of topsy-turvy. The, the children are often helping uh, the parents rather than the parents helping the children. And that's the most standard uh, type of person who becomes president. All right, and now a little bit about the playful pals. Uh, I have my three stars for that chapter are Grant, uh, Ulysses S. Grant, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, and Wilson. Uh, Ulysses S. Grant, I mean, we know him as a general who, who brutalized a lot of people, but he was actually very sweet uh, with his children. And again, that, that these figures, these powerful figures are very compartmentalized. And Grant was a drinker, and my sense is that he was a drinker not because he was a social misfit, but because he, he, he often missed his children terribly. And he resigns from the army in 1854, and he writes these touching letters to his wife. And they, they, he kind of lapses into 21st century psychology. And he says, oh, the attachment to my boy. I wonder how he's doing. And he, he, he has a kind of drinking fit that, that leads to his uh, expulsion, or he, he resigns from the army. Uh, but, he, but he loved to play with his kids. Teddy Roosevelt was kind of a man's man and would, would you know, box with his kids and hunt and fish. Woodrow Wilson, here from here in Virginia, had three daughters. And uh, he, he, as one of the daughters says, he was a curious mix of dignity and almost wild gaiety. He would love dancing with his daughters. Uh, and 
one of if 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 you believe that the child sort of tends to marry the father, one of the daughters marries the best dancer in Washington, who is uh, Wilson's Secretary of Treasury, uh, William McAdoo. All right, now a little bit about the double-dealing dads. So my three stars, uh, Tyler, Cleveland, and Harding. Uh, about Tyler, uh, Tyler was born in 1790. And I spoke with Harrison Tyler, who is his grandson. And Harrison Tyler was born in 1928. And so there's a gap there you know, of almost 140 years. But that gap uh, has something to do with my thesis, which is, as, as Tyler's leading biographer, Ed Kripal, states that he was kind of lusty. And Tyler, <laughs> both Tyler and his son, Lion were having children uh, up in their 70s, and that's why there's such a huge gap between the generations. Uh, in, in 1841, when Tyler becomes president, there is a piece in the newspaper uh, arguing, claiming that Tyler fathered slave children, including a few whom he sold. Uh, now, I, I tried to uh, verify that allegation. I could not. There are some documents right here at the VHS of some sales of slave children. So they could potentially be what the article is referring to. Uh, I did speak with Daryl Dance, uh, a professor in the English department at the University of Richmond, who has conducted some oral histories of, descent, of, of people who claim to be descendants of Tyler. Uh, and, and according to these oral histories, there are dozens of slave children. Uh, and I, in the chapter, I, I go into more detail. What I wanted to say about Tyler is I try to relate the parenting to the policy. Uh, tr Tyler, there were five presidents alive at the, end, at the beginning of the Civil War. Tyler was the only one who sided with the South. So in the view of Lincoln, uh, Tyler betrayed his country. When Tyler dies in 1862, Lincoln refuses to acknowledge his death. So it is possible that Tyler uh, betrayed his country, as he may have well betrayed a few of these children. But at the same time, Tyler and I think people are very complicated. For instance, Grover Cleveland, in the election of 1884, this question of whether he had a child, Cleveland acknowledges uh, that he had a child, and he wins the election. I did find an affidavit that was printed in, the, in 1844 in which the woman in question alleges that Cleveland raped her. Now, I was not there. I don't know. But I think all we need to say is that it's a he said, she said. And I think historians have been neglectful in not giving her side of the story. Uh, with, but but the, what I want to say about Cleveland was I think personally I'm not impressed by Cleveland's behavior. As a father, he later has five children with his beautiful young wife. I also found a letter at the New York Public Library showing that the woman he marries, he cheated on her. And I'm not impressed by Cleveland's private life. But I think he was a very honest president. 
and and he he uh, he he said he had a split personality. He had Grover the Good, and Big Steve, and Big Steve was kind of the wild man, but Grover the Good was very good with the budget. A lot of his friends wanted jobs in the administration, and he had the toughness to say no. So I, I, again, I want to capture this complexity and that people can have dark sides and personally maybe do things that we might not approve of, but that sometimes they can be good stewards of the nation. So remember what I started with, that we tend to either idealize or denigrate. And I, I think all the sides, I think people are complicated and have all these pockets. And the same goes for Tyler. Tyler, uh, domestically, he had few allies. His whole cabinet resigns early in his administration over uh, a bill that they, uh, it's a little complicated to go into right now, but they resigned, and he, he, he was, was a party of, by himself. Domestically, he didn't do very well, but in foreign policy, he, he, was, a, he, he was a good deal maker. And one of the deals he makes is to acquire Texas. And when the treaty uh, doesn't pass, he comes up with a kind of end around to acquire Texas uh, at the very last week of his administration. So I want to leave open the fact that sometimes people we might not, whose behavior we might not approve of might still be very competent in other areas. And again, complexity is what I'm after in biography. And I think that it's sometimes just hard to digest that if you know, you've seen the movie Schindler's List, you know, he wasn't such a great guy, but he saved a lot of Jews. And, and that often happens, and that's how complicated human beings are. All right, the Tiger Dads, uh, John Adams, uh, John Quincy Adams, and Eisenhower. John Adams told John Quincy Adams, his eldest son, basically, either you're president or you're a failure. John Quincy rose to the occasion. He had two other sons who drowned in alcohol. Uh, one uh, may have been gay. He disowns the son. The son, some historians believe the son had a, uh, a lover in Baron von Steuben who was kicked out of Germany because of being gay and had a coterie of, of young men around him. Adams disowns him, is very, very tough, and Charles Adams dies around 30. Another son, Thomas, uh, dies, uh, has a very sad life. John Quincy Adams, remember that George Washington Adams, has three sons. George Washington, giving, giving your son a name like George Washington shows the high expectations. George Washington is a star at Harvard. He wins a literary prize over Ralph, Ralph Waldo Emerson. But he is very shy, and this is, this is the saddest few pages in my book. In 1829, uh, Adams is finished as president. He's, he's, Jackson defeats him, and he calls George Washington back from Boston and says, I want you to come to Washington to help me move. George Washington is then 28. He has an illicit uh, daughter, uh, he has an illicit child with a chambermaid, and his law career is stalled, and he's terrified of seeing his father. And on the trip back to Washington, he jumps off a boat. Uh, but I, I wrote this piece for the New York Times about presidential grief, and I spoke to a lot of psychologists. 
And grief can do two things. It can sort of break a president, as it did with Pierce, or it can help a president or, or a person in general who loses a child find some heroic parts. Remember with John Quincy Adams, he has this amazing sec second career as an abolitionist congressman. And it's out of that loss that he finds the courage you know, to, to devote himself to something. And he often, and he becomes much kinder and more tolerant of his third son, Charles Francis Adams, who like himself becomes a success. Charles Francis Adams, you may remember, is the ambassador to Great Britain during the Civil War. And he's the person responsible for uh, nixing the union between the England and the South. And he's a major figure in American history. He was considered presidential timber, so he's a son uh, this tiger dad kind of makes. And there's also another son, John Adams II, who dies of alcoholism in his early uh, 30s. Uh, all right. The grief-stricken, I've spoken about Pierce and Coolidge. The other star of the chapter is William McKinley. And McKinley loses two children in the 1870s, but in contrast to Pierce and Coolidge, who are broken by these losses, McKinley is kind of energized, and the lo loss of his children is kind of like polio to FDR. Polio may well have made FDR. It, it, it helped him sort of find himself as a politician. Uh, McKinley loses these two daughters. His wife then has a stroke, and she becomes an invalid. But this becomes his brand as this caring uh, husband who shares this deep bond with his wife. And, that's one of the and he goes into politics. And that's one of the reasons he becomes so popular. Uh, and in 18, so he's eventually elected president in 1896. And his wife, uh, like Jane Pierce, uh, remains a little bit nutty. She is. Uh, she has a picture of this uh, child who's died 20 years before the presidency all over the place. And she, has, she, she, she sends out postcards as if the children are still alive. And she's really kind of frozen in time. But at the same time, McKinley himself finds a purpose. So psychologists, as I report in that New York Times story, have this concept of post-traumatic growth about how suffering a loss can lead to strength. Another example is Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln loses Willie in 1862, and one of the first person people he hears from is Franklin Pierce, who's still alive. And Pierce sends him a letter and says, Mr. President, I know exactly what you're going through. But historians have argued that the loss of Willie, his favorite child, uh, Lincoln has an elder son, Robert, uh, and for Robert, Lincoln is kind of a preoccupied dad, and Robert becomes very famous. And I, in my research, one of my favorite finds was in 1862, just about the right before Willie dies, Lincoln gets a letter from the president of Harvard, and the president of Harvard says, uh, Mr. I realize you're busy, Mr. President, you know, with the Civil War, but Robert is failing chemistry. <laughs> uh, and you have to do something. And, and Lincoln rarely spent time uh, with Robert, but Willie is his favorite. He calls him his twin, and Willie dies at age 11 in February of 1862. But in, in contrast to Coolidge, Lincoln 
then becomes this heroic leader who's able to marshal this. It somehow helps him find himself in his kind of curious way. And he may, you know, and so again, these traumas can either make or break a president. And Lincoln, there seems to be some post-traumatic growth. And the post-traumatic growth doesn't mean that the, the, the trauma goes away. Lincoln once said, I thought about Willie every day, you know, for, for the rest of his life. But it, uh, they, that these presidents can kind of find a voice. There's a long list of presidents who've lost children. Uh, an interesting example is JFK. Uh, he has a child who, Patrick, who dies about two months before he's assassinated. And JFK was a womanizer. My double dealing dad's chapter doesn't really include, I'm not so much interested in, in women, uh, womenizers, but in, so JFK doesn't make that because he had a, a lot of romances, but he didn't uh, you know, father a child out of wedlock. But JFK uh, loses the child, and his marriage is very frosty. But it seems to deepen him. And it's just so sad. In the last couple of months of his life, uh, JFK and Jackie become much closer for the first time in a long time. And it just gives you a sense that JFK, there might have been a new depth uh, it makes the assassination even sadder. And then, to leave you on a little more upbeat note, uh, the nurturing dads. My favorite dad, I think, of all is Rutherford B. Hayes. You might know, President, he's forgotten. He was president in 1876. And uh, the Southerners have a couple of Southerners write biographies of Hayes, and the Southerners love Hayes because he was the one who took the, the troops, federal troops, out of the South in 1877. And that was respond, you know, that helped uh, Southerners do what they want. And they were no longer subjected to, to federal authority. But Hayes was very nurturing. Uh, and remember, today, there's the White House Easter egg roll. It's the largest event every year, about 30,000 kids hop on the president's lawn, and it goes back to the sweet dad. Uh, in the 1870s, there was no s Secret Service protection. Hayes was walking outside the White House one day. A street urchin comes up to him and says, sir, can we roll our eggs on your lawn? And Hayes said, sure, let's do it. And uh, that's how that got started. He has five children, and just the sensitivity with which he, you know, his, his daughter, his four-year-old daughter, uh, he writes a letter about her birthday party, and she's using a new word, and he's just really attuned to his children. As a Civil, as a civil War general, he was very fatherly with his soldiers. Uh, if one was dying, he would just make sure that you know, contact a family member himself. Uh, and Hay what's interesting about Hayes, my, my three uh, sweet dads are, are Hayes, Truman, and Obama. And what's interesting about Hayes is that he didn't know his own father, and he had a sweet mother and a sister. So he fathers just as he was mothered. And the same is true of Obama. Obama knew his, hardly knew his own father, uh, and he had a sweet mother. I, I interviewed some people who knew his mother, and his mother uh, w was very warm, and she also was very, very smart, and at, at age 16, she told her high school classmates she wanted to be an anthropologist, and everyone had to look up the word in the dictionary. Uh, 
anyhow, Obama's mother is a huge influence on him, and and he and whatever one thinks about his policies, I think most Americans get a sense that he's a good father and are kind of proud of that. But as I talk about in the epilogue, there's also the possibility that, that Obama is too good a father. Uh, I spoke with Susan Eisenhower, the granddaughter of Ike, who said that the presidency is kind of a combat zone and that maybe Obama promises to, to eat dinner with his kids five nights a week and he's lived up to that, but maybe that's unrealistic. I mean, LBJ uh, didn't spend much time with his kids, but he was out schmoozing and bending arms. By the way, LBJ also gave the Johnson treatment to his daughter. Remember, the Johnson treatment is, is out the way LBJ negotiates, and I'll do this for you, and I really love you, and how can you not sign this bill? He did that with his daughter. His daughter is a Head Start teacher, and he wants her to, to commit more to Head Start, and he says, don't you love those kids? And you know, she gives up. He's, he's, he's a great uh, negotiator. But the sense that maybe Obama has, in, in this question of what kind of father makes a good president, I wrote something for Parade Magazine about this, and I think Obama, Hayes, and Truman are, are definitely great fathers, but they're not necessarily great presidents. Uh, our greatest presidents have come from the preoccupied, you know, Franklin Roosevelt or Ronald Reagan, whatever you want thinks about their policies, left or right. They're both very influential leaders, and they really connected with the country and moved the country forward in a certain way. Uh, whereas Obama, Truman, and Hayes uh, were people who, who tried to get along and weren't as influential. Uh, but, but the thing about the, the sweet dads, let's say Truman, for example, when Truman leaves office in 1952, his popularity is about 20%. And he was criticized for some of the same things that Obama is criticized for about trying to get along with everyone. Uh, but you know, after David McCullough's biography, there's just a sense that he was a very decent man, and history has seen him a bit more kindly. And I also try to relate throughout the book uh, parenting to policy. And to give you one example uh, before I stop, you, you remember Truman's daughter in 1950 gives a concert and the Washington Post critic is very harsh. The next morning, Truman gets up at 5 a.m., and he's furious, and he writes a, a letter to the editor threatening to you know, chop the guy's block off. <laughs> His aides think that it's a disaster, and he says, let's see what the mail says. The mail comes back 80-20 <laughs> in favor, and Margaret says, I'm glad chivalry isn't dead. And let's connect that to the biggest decision of Truman's life, which is whether to use the atom bomb in August. And, and I think they're related. I don't think Truman was a violent person, but I feel like he was a protective father. And he said, if you mess with my daughter, I'm going to go upside your head. I'm going to chop your block off. And I think the same calculus was at work with the atom bomb. It's not like he wanted to start a war. But the generals told him that unless we end the war, 250,000 American boys are going to die. And he said, if you're going to take 250,000 American boys, I'm going to chop your, knock your block off. And I think that explains his decision to use the atom bomb. And that's what I'm trying to do in this book, is to get inside the heads of these leaders and to get a sense of how they make decisions in an effort to deepen our sense of American history and, and how 
these movers and shakers shaped history, and also as we think about this election, how we think about who we want in that office and what kinds of decisions they're likely to make. Okay, I think I'll stop there and I'll be happy to take some questions. Suppose uh, George Washington was a uh, double dealer since he fathered a country, but uh, uh, no, George Washington I actually think was a, quite a sweet dad. Well, that that was my question. How did you view him as a stepfather? Quite sweet, and uh, as I said, Hayes fathered as he was mothered, and Washington's mother taught him how not to parent. He wanted to be just the opposite of his mother. And his mother was very tough on him. Uh, during the war, she would write these critical letters and try to embarrass him. Oh, the general is leaving me without money and all this. And he said, I'm not going to do that to the next generation. And he was very sweet with Martha's kids. And, uh, and he was a connector, he, uh, like Hayes, who was trying to connect the country, or Truman. He, his style uh, was, was really trying to connect with his family and to connect with the country, unify the country. Any, any number of questions have come to mind while you're speaking. I'll, I'll ask you, um, did Harrison Tyler uh, mention, did you bring up about the allegations about his yes. grandfather with Harrison Tyler? Uh, yes, Harrison has said that has denied that Tyler fathered any slave children, but has acknowledged that maybe one of Tyler's siblings uh, fathered these slave children. So uh, he's not totally dismissing that, the allegations, but he's saying that he doesn't believe that Tyler himself is, was involved. Do you mention anything in the book about Jefferson Davis? I know it doesn't qualify as a U.S. president, but he did have a child who fell off the balcony yes. of the White House of the Confederacy. Yes, and also he loses a child. Uh, that's one of his connections with Pierce, I think, in the 1850s. When he's Pierce's secretary of war, he loses a child. And he and Pierce are very, very close through that shared, shared loss. Yep. And fine. Is it true that Abraham Lincoln had his son um, exhumed Willie, after, he, after the boy had been buried, so that he could look upon his face. Yeah, yeah. And Coolidge, I remember when Coolidge's son is dragged out of the White House, he stops them and says, I need to look at that boy, the same. But again, Lincoln, what's so remarkable is out of that horror, he's an amazingly, uh, whatever you think of his policy, just a very efficient leader where Coolidge kind of crumbles from the grief. Yes? Buchanan have an adopted child? Buchanan uh, was our only bachelor, but he has a niece, Harriet, and he's very playful with Harriet, so I call him a playful uh, pal. You didn't mention James Madison's stepson. Yes. Uh, Madison was quite sweet with his stepson, but he had all kinds of problems, unfortunately. Uh, but he, Har Madison really tried to do his best, but he kept getting into debt, and uh, it was a, he had a very difficult uh, life, a son. 
you have the three stars in each chapter, right. but do you actually have a list where you put all of the presidents in one or other of the categories? Yeah, so all the presidents are in at least one category, and some are in two. So I talked about George Herbert Walker Bush, for example, who was a preoccupied dad, but also lost a child. Uh, with Johnson, Johnson, LBJ was a womanizer who may have, LBJ once said, I had more women by uh, accident than Kennedy had by design. Uh, and, and LBJ, uh, there is a woman who alleges that he fathered her child. And I put, so he's a preoccupied dad, but he's also, I have a small thing in, in, the, in the double dealing dad. And I also, uh, one of his staff members told a recent biographer that LBJ offered to set her up in a New York apartment if she would have his child. Uh, so I say a little bit about him, but that's an example of someone who also fits into two categories. James Garfield has experienced the resurrection recently. Uh, except for Paul's passing reference in his introduction, you did not mention Garfield. Yes, very uh, nurturing. Uh, and my book starts, he's in the prologue, and it starts, it's in July of 1881. He's going to go with his two eldest children to Williams College, where they're about to enroll. They're singing Gilbert and Sullivan, uh, and they're having a grand old time. And the, the next the few hours later, Garfield's shot at the train station. And just that sense of loss, and Garfield, uh, and I try to relate that to policy, that Garfield was way ahead of the curve. In his inaugural, he spoke uh, very uh, movingly about trying to help black people feel more a part of this country and just the sensitivity to his own children and the sensitivity to people who, who, who had less power uh, in their lives you know, kind of comes out in his family and also with what he hoped to do uh, for the country. But he was very, although he, he did cheat on his wife, but you know, but he was a great family man uh, with, his, with his children. Yep. Uh, I'm unclear what your view was of Thomas Jefferson, how you categorized him, and why. Yeah, Thomas Jefferson, uh, I, I stayed away from Thomas Jefferson because so much has been written about him. So when I talk about the three stars, I tr you know, Tyler is not that well known, and his private life isn't that well known. So I thought that that would be more interesting for the reader. Thomas Jefferson you know, would qualify as a, a double-dealing dad, if you're con you know, convinced of the Annette Gordon-Reed uh, work. This project actually started because I, my last book, America's Obsessives, was about control freaks who played a huge role in American history. And it starts with Thomas Jefferson and it goes through Steve Jobs. And Jefferson was a visionary leader, and you know, he's, he's our most articulate proponent of freedom. But with his own daughters, he was a control freak. He told them what to wear. He gave them a schedule and was very, very controlling. And I just thought that was just, how do you make sense of that, how someone leads a country and how they lead a family? And sometimes presidents lead the country the same way that they lead the family. I'm trying to say Truman. You know, was, was a connector with his daughter and a connector with his country. But sometimes it's just the opposite. Both Ronald Reagan and FDR were terrifically inspiring leaders with the country. But both uh, FDR and Reagan 
uh, had alienated their children. FDR has five children who ended up having 19 marriages, and there's just a lot of dysfunction in that family. And if you remember when Nancy Reagan dies a couple of months ago, there was just a sense that she and Ron often left the children out, and his own children felt neglected. He had a wonderful bond with Nancy, but the children didn't feel so connected. So he'd be an example of someone who leads the country in one way and his family in another. And so the Jefferson uh, situation, or Jefferson's duality and how he led his family in the country was what got me started on this project and just thinking about leadership. Thank you. Is there, you've spoken uh, in large part about the departmentalization, departmentalization of lives. Is there any president or two whose lives seem consistent? I think the nurturers, uh, you know, the, so the Hayes and Truman, uh, and another nurturer is here in uh, Virginia, which is James Monroe. Because we think of nurturers as 21st century. Fathering has changed, and the norms in the 18th century were you know, be a provider and let your wife do everything. Uh, and James Monroe was, was very sweet and not compartmentalized. And he had two daughters, and as, as opposed to Jefferson, who when he's in, when he's in Paris, he, he sends his daughter to a boarding school, two daughters to a boarding school, and is kind of disconnected. Madison, uh, Monroe was always very close to his daughters and just very, very sensitive, and he becomes a big proponent for female education. So I think the nurturers tend to be uh, you know, the most straightforward. But I, I guess maybe part of the analysis is that the presidency, as Susan Eisenhower says, is a battle zone. And maybe it's helpful to be a little compartmentalized you know, when you have Hitler breathing down your neck or some incredible crisis. And some, you know, Churchill, think about Churchill, some of these great leaders are often compartmentalized. And when there's no crisis, they're not so good. But they're great in a crisis. So, my point in writing the book is just opening this up and just seeing how, uh, just how different uh, you know, the possibilities are and to make us deepen our understanding of what makes people tick and how they not respond in certain situations. I wanted to know, since Eleanor Roosevelt was Franklin's greatest asset. Yes. How did their children face the fact that the marriage was estranged? Yes. One, one of the saddest uh, things about that is that he, when Anna was living in the White House in, in the 1940s, and, and he's going to Yalta, he kind of brag, he, he tells Anna, oh, that's where my lover lives. He points out Lucy Mercer's house. And he's sort of, you know, and Anna, you know, is in this horrible position because she feels an allegiance to her mother. And FDR, again, did not handle it very well. And it just shows that as a family man, uh, he really was, you know, w w was, was a big disappointment. Uh, but as a leader, uh, you know, in, he, he was quite something, but he, he didn't handle it, it very well. Uh, and and I, think, and I think Eleanor also, sometimes the president can be preoccupied or like Coolidge was, was very sad, and, but his wife was very sweet and they had one son uh, who still lived, 
you know, was still around after the death of Calvin Jr. And, and she was a great parent to him. And El, but FDR was preoccupied, but Eleanor herself lost both her parents by the age of 11, and she really wasn't able to pick up the slack that uh, her husband, you know, he was off with polio and had all these uh, problems raising the children, but Eleanor had problems of her own, so I think that's another reason why uh, the children uh, had these very chaotic lives. The one child who did well, who seemed to find some happiness, uh, was Anna, and I theorize that she was the eldest. She was born in 1906, so she had 15 years of the pre-polio FDR when he was much more emotionally available, and that might have helped her quite a bit later life where the, where the sons definitely felt alienated and connected because FDR was really around uh, in the 1920s.